Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We go th- we're going through the book of Colossians, but today we're going to do something different. Just because this really is a historic day. I mean, I don't guess in any of our lives, unless you lived in a catastrophic area from a hurricane or something, we've never closed church for two months and then come back together. And so I'm so glad that you've come. And if you're watching online, we're so glad that you're watching today and, and, and understand completely. But today, I want us to think about what we have in Christ. A lot of times we take it for granted until it's not there. For example, I don't know that we'll ever complain about assembling together again. When you can't do it, all of a sudden it becomes precious to you. Today I want to read out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we thank you for your word. And now we pray you'll encourage us, speak to our hearts, challenge us, Help us to understand who we are and what we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. There was a rich young, there was a rich landowner. I don't know how young he was, but he was a rich landowner, name of Carl. Carl liked to ride around his estate to, to remind himself of how wealthy he was. One day he was out on his favorite horse, riding around, and he came to a a tree, and under this tree was an old tenant farmer by the name of Hans. And when he he rode up, Carl, Hans said to Carl, well, I was just now thanking God for the food that he's given me to eat. And Carl looked at him, and he said, if that's all I had to eat, I sure wouldn't feel like giving thanks. And Hans said to him, Carl, God has given me all that I have ever needed. And by the way, Carl, it's interesting that you drove, you drove by, you rode by, is that last night I dreamed, and in my dream I heard a voice that said, the richest man in the valley will die tonight. I don't know what that means, but I thought I ought to tell you. Well, Carl left, and he couldn't get Hans' words out of his mind, the richest man in the valley will die tonight. He obviously was the richest man in the valley So he invited his doctor to his house that evening, and Carl told the doctor what Hans said. And after a thorough examination, the doctor told Carl, you're as healthy as your horse. You're not going to die tonight. 
But nevertheless, for assurance, the doctor stayed with Carl all night and they played cards. Nine o'clock the next morning, somebody came to the door and Carl went and said, Who, what is it and what do you want? And it was a messenger and he said, it's about old Hans. He died last night in his sleep. Sometimes the people we think are the richest people in the valley are not who we think they are. And I want you to know today as a child of God, you have so much to be thankful for. I hope this sermon will encourage you when you realize not only who you are, but the privileges that you have as a believer. So I want us to think for a moment about this. This letter to Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were at risk. They were about to defect. They were about to leave because the persecution was so great and they were about to go back to their old Jewish ways and the writer of Hebrews tells them that Jesus is so much better and you need to realize what you have. So with that in mind, I want to remind you what you have in Christ. First of all, you have a covenant position, a covenant, a promise we have a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples and he gave them the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Well, folks, you need to understand what exactly this means. Two implications here. First of all, you have access to God. Did you notice in verse 19, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. In the Old Testament, the worship of God, you had to be distant because you didn't have the opportunity to come close to God. Social distancing was the day, uh, was the order of the day because you would bring a sacrifice and give it to the priest. Well, then you had to leave. You couldn't go any further. The priest would take it further in, and after the sacrifice was made later on, the high priest, one time a year, would go even to the Holy of Holies after all kinds of ritual cleansing and things, and he would go behind the veil, which was probably three or four inches thick and 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. He would go behind that veil. They made it thick so that you couldn't accidentally stumble into the Holy of Holies because if you did, you would die. If you came into the presence of God in his holiness and his perfection, you would die. And so the high priest would go in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, indicating that the atonement for the sins of the people had been made for the year. But the fact was, here you are out here outside holding your breath wondering, is he going to come out or not? Is everything okay? So you were distant from God. But when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew tells us that that veil was torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. You and I wouldn't have been strong enough to tear it anyway. But God tore it from top to bottom, indicating that no longer were we separated from God. We now have access to him through Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice in that verse, it has nothing to do with you and me. Our boldness, our confidence to come before God is because of the blood of Jesus. 
Back in chapter 9, verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So the sinless blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb, when he died on the cross, the ultimate final atonement was made, and the separation between God and man was removed. So we have access to God. Now, I want to show you something else. Look at verse 20. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Now, this is really an aha moment. Maybe not for you, but it was for me. New, the word new comes from the root word recently slain, killed. Recently slain, through a new, recently slain, Jesus died for us and living way. So you see, the, you see the death and the resurrection here. Through a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh. That veil separated us from God, man from God. When Jesus died, his flesh was torn. In fact, Isaiah says that they beat him so severely he didn't look human. And you remember when Jesus took the bread when he celebrated the Passover with the disciples, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom, and it says now we have access through the veil, his flesh. So what does that mean? It means that there's still a separation between us and God. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between us and God, and he is the, quote, veil. He's the one that we go through to get to God. And so when God says, I can now see you, you can have a relationship with me, we come through Jesus Christ. We have access through him. He's our access. There is no other way to be saved but through Jesus. When people tell you all religions are the same, they're not the same. There's only one mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the veil. He is the one that we go through to get to God. His body was broken for us. We can boldly go where no man had gone before. <laughs> I knew you'd recognize that. But to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish mind, or this, this letter was written to, that was an incredible statement. Not only do we have access, but you have an advocate. It says that he... And having a high priest, verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. Hebrews is the only book in the Bible to develop the truth of the priesthood of Jesus. By offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins, he fulfilled everything connected with the Levitical priesthood and even surpassed them. Chapter 7, verse 25 says that he is at the right hand of God interceding for his people. We now are priests. It's hard to say that with a, with a plural. 
We believe in the priesthood of all believers. You don't have to go through a priest to get to God. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ. We go through him. Now, you couple that with 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, in verse 21, it says, he's the high priest over the house of God. Who is the house of God? Us. When y'all leave, this is not the house of God. This is an empty building that we've set apart to worship. The house of God came in here right before 11 o'clock, or they're watching online to worship with us. The, the house of God is you and me, and our priest, our advocate is Jesus Christ. He's the one that intercedes for us. He's the one that defends us when Satan accuses us before God the Father. He is our advocate. He is our high priest. So what do you have through this new covenant in Jesus? You know what you have? You have direct access to God. You don't have to go to a priest. You can talk to God through Jesus. And you have someone interceding for you. You have an advocate that defends you, Jesus Christ. That's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, that right there is something to take home that you already have. But because of what Jesus did, we have that confidence and that boldness. We don't have to be afraid. Because of that, of what Jesus did in the life and the person and work of Christ, there's three verses there, and I drew your attention to it when I said they all start with let us do this. There's three commandments there. One of them deals with God. One of them deals with ourself. And one of them deals with everyone else. So let's look at them quickly. The first command, I say we have a consecrated privilege. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Under Old Testament law, even the high priest had to go through a lot of things to go in before God. And now God says, come on in. Come on in. Draw near. Get close. It's in present tense, which means we continually approach God. We don't have to be afraid. Come on in. We come with boldness, and we come with a true heart, which means it's not divided. You know, it's easy to fool other people. You can fake out over the people, and you can wear a spiritual mask to make yourself look holy and your heart be far from God. But he says, listen, you make sure your heart is pure, and you come to God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Come with a true heart, not divided. In full assurance of faith. How do you know you're saved? It'd be nice if God put a mark on us, wouldn't it? Or gave us something to carry around. Here, I, 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 yo, I got the mark. I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? There's only one way to know. That's by faith. You don't go by feelings. I'll tell you, some mornings I get up, I don't feel saved. 
I don't feel good. But I know that I'm saved because I wasn't saved by my feelings. I was saved by faith. The only way to see God, the only way to know God, the only way to honor God, the only way to worship God is by faith in Christ. Chapter 11, verse 6, he said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is God's gift to us and our responsibility. It rests on the promises of God. We believe what God said. We believe his promises. I trust them. Our faith is not a mindless, blind leap in the dark. It rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has given us assurance. And the better we know him, the more we trust him. So when we come and we ask God to forgive us and we give our life and commit our lives to Christ through faith, Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does that mean? Do you have a conscience? I don't like mine, do you? Is it always bothering you? Mine's always bothering me. Because I never measure up to my own standards. I, I, I never measure up to perfection. And, and I'm always hard on myself. And my conscience, you know, it's, it's evil. It's blind. It's, it's corrupt. It condemns me before God. So how can I approach God when my conscience might even be bothering me? Because it has been covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to tell you, there's some freedom there because if we just go by our conscience all the time or the way we feel, we're not ever going to go anywhere. We have to remember, you know what? I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. I know I've still got a long way to go, but God's still working on me. And Lord, when I come to you, I don't have to be perfect to come to you to draw near to you, to walk in your ways. My conscience has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And when Satan condemns me, I remind him that Jesus paid it all. And then what is this part about washing the body with pure water? Now, some people would say, well, see, that's baptism. And when you're baptized, it washes away your sin. That ain't so. That's not what that means. A lot of times water and the Holy Spirit are used synonymously or the Holy Spirit is compared to water like washing of the water through the word in Ephesians 5 and so forth. Baptism is proof that you've committed your life to Christ. Baptism doesn't save you, but if you've been saved, you're going to be baptized. It's not optional. Jesus said, profess me before men, I'll profess you before my Father. But baptism, first of all, we don't have any pure water. And even if we did, if we dunked you in the water, it doesn't wash away your sins. The only thing that'll take away your sins is the blood of Jesus. However, because I have had my conscience covered in the blood of Christ and forgiven, I will outwardly show what he has done. When you are saved on the inside, it will show on the outside. That's what baptism is. But not just baptism, but the way we live. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's not optional. And I think the two participles here, sprinkling and washing, sprinkling of the conscience and washing of the body, are, are um, 
the perfectness, perfect participle means it happened at a point in time and the effects are still going. Basically, it's saying that what happened at salvation has outward effects about it. You're going to continue to live that way. But how can I, how can I come with boldness to God when I'm such a sinful man? Because of the faith I have in Jesus Christ and he's covered my sin and it shows outwardly. I hope that makes sense to you. If your conscience bothers you, you, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have the privilege of coming to God, drawing near. He wants to know you. He loves you. He, he wants to have a relationship with you. He, he's saying, come on in. I know you're not perfect. You're just forgiven. And when I look at you, I look at you through what Jesus has done for you. That's good stuff, isn't it? Thank you for that amen. I haven't had one in a while. <laughs> the second command relates to self. We have a continued profession. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The Hebrew Christians were under the threat of persecution. We may face persecution in this country, and we need to be ready for it. But we all face the pressure of conforming to the world, but we're told to hold fast to the confession of hope. Don't waver. We publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ at baptism. When I married Laura 40, almost 42 years ago, I committed my life to her. One of the outward signs of that is a wedding ring. This ring reminds me of a confession and a profession that I made to her. It reminds me, it, it, I say, you know, I, that's right. It, it holds a lot of responsibility. It reminds me of a lot of things. When we look back at our commitment to Christ and our public baptism, we need to hold fast that profession and that confession of faith and say, I'm going to live in such a way that I don't dishonor that. To continue unwavering. By the way, the confession of hope. Do you have any hope? Hope is not based on something that is a possibility. Hope is hope in the scripture is based on a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. Do y'all believe Jesus is coming back? Yes. He hadn't come back yet though, has he? So we that's a hope that we have. Not we're hoping that it's true. No, we know that's based on the fact that he's going to come back. And I'm not going to waver off of that. My confession is in Jesus Christ. My profession is him. I believe in his promises because they're based on him, not me. And I'm going to live for him without wavering because look what else it says. For he who promised is faithful. When God promises it, when Jesus promises it, it's going to happen. He's faithful. 
Now they're going to, in the end times, Peter said, they're going to be people who say, where's the promise of his coming? Y'all been talking about that for 2,000 years and he hadn't come back. You really believe that? Peter goes on to remind them that one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day to the Lord and that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We don't doubt the promises of God. We keep holding fast our profession, our faith in him. The third commandment relates to other believers. We have a corporate practice. When Jesus returned to heaven, what did he establish the day of Pentecost? He established an organism, an organization to carry on his work and evangelize the nations until he comes again. He did not establish a school or a college or a club or a corporation or a labor union or a women's group or a men's group or a political movement or a city or a state or a nation or a charity or a resort. He established his church. And he said, I will build my church. It's never been an organization like it in human history, never will be again. The church has a limited engagement. It's a limited lifespan. Started at the day of Pentecost, when will it end? At the rapture, when the church is taken out. It's the only time the church exists in the scripture. It's when it started, when the Holy Spirit came, and, we'll, and after chapter two in the book of Revelation, you don't see the church mentioned anymore. It's going to be taken out. So the church is commissioned to take the gospel. We are the church, and there are so many people that say so much about the church. First of all, I will tell you, there's not a perfect one because there's no perfect people, only forgiven. So if you're looking for a perfect one, you've got to be one of the most miserable people on earth because there's not one. You can't find it. But I will tell you, we're supposed to gather as a church. Now why? What do we do when we gather as a church? Well, first of all, verse 24 says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. To consider one another means you give it some thought and when you come, you think of other people. But most people, when they think of church, only think of themselves. Does it meet my needs? It's not perfect. I don't like this. I don't like that. And on and on and on and on. They never consider others. It says, let us consider one another. So before we say anything to someone, we need to think before we speak. For one thing, you need to understand that every person who's a child of God has the same access to God and the same privileges you do. So we talk to one another. We need to consider one another. True story. In November of 1998, a landlord entered the apartment of Wolfgang Dirks in Bonn, Germany, and the reason he went in is because the invoices to Dirk's bank stopped paying the rental. When he got inside the apartment, he found a skeleton in a chair in front of the television. The set was in the on position, but it was now out of order. 
It was early November, but he had a Christmas lights up and a TV program guide on his lap. The TV program guide on his lap was dated December 5th, 1993, five years earlier. And since no one had seen Dirks in years, authorities declared the date on the TV guide to be his date of death. None of his neighbors had noticed. And he was not some 90-year-old man. He was... 43 years old, and no one noticed him. Can you think of anything more sad than that? When we come to church, there are probably people here that wonder if anybody notices them or even cares. We're to consider one another. And he mentions three things that we do when we consider one another. First of all, we're to work together. He said we're to stir up. Now, you know what the literal translation is of that word stir up? It's usually used in a negative connotation. It means to provoke one another. That's easy to do in a Baptist church. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to provoke people. That's what I mean. I want you to provoke people. Now, there are times when that uses word, like in Acts 15, 39 and Acts 17, 16, where it means they were provoked to anger. And I believe the writer uses it to grab attention. I want, when you get together, provoke one another. Stimulate one another. Stir up one another. But not to anger but to love and good deeds or good works. It implies that you have to work at it. It doesn't come naturally. The word love is agape love, God's kind of love. It's the love that looks outward. Our faith looks backward to God, our hope looks forward, and our love looks outward. And the word good is that used to be good works, manifested things that we do as a church. We are to stir up one another to continue living for the Lord, to do good things that are outwardly manifested. And I'm so part, glad to be part of a church that has that going. There are a lot of good ministries here, and we encourage one another. But do you help encourage others? And the context where we work together takes place when we assemble together. So the second deal is let us worship together. Verse 25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. A lot of people drop out of church and they say, I didn't meet my needs. They're unfriendly. They're unloving. But folks, did you know the church isn't just about you? It's about others. You can practice faith and hope when you're alone, but you cannot encourage others to love and good deeds when you're alone. You have to gather with the saints to do it. I know right now that those of you who are at home, you're home for a reason, and I understand that. I also understand when people cannot come because of health reasons and uh, having to work. And th I know that all the exceptions, but there's some people who have no excuse. They just don't come. 
Well, you need to go somewhere because worship is the place where God meets sinners in saving mercy. People of God need mercy, and they come seeking the Lord. It becomes a house of mercy. It's a place where our family gathers. We're a family, and a family gathers together. It's a place where the Lord Jesus Christ meets his people. He said, when people gather in my name, I'm in the midst of them. In Matthew 18, 20. It's a place where God deals with people. It's a place that God speaks to men by his spirit through his word. In all the ages, people of God have been known and identified by their public gatherings of worship. When God had a people in the world, he's had a congregation to worship him. Sheep are in flocks. The only sheep that are alone are those who are sick or lost. Listen, public worship is one, not the only, but it's one of the identifying marks of true believers. This passage in Hebrews talks about people rejecting it and going back to Judaism. You couple that with 1 John, and John said they went out from among us because they never were of us. They may have been influenced a little while, but they never committed to Christ the neglect of public worship is the first step toward apostasy. I'm not being legalistic, and I don't keep records of who comes to worship and who doesn't. But I'll tell you, after two months, aren't you glad to be back in the house with some other people? There's something to it, isn't there? Don't look for any perfect people in here. I've looked around. I don't see any. <laughs> we work together and we worship together. And I look forward to the day when there are no more hindrances and other people can come. But you know what? We also wait together. Because verse 25 says, exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. I don't know when the Lord's going to return. Neither do you, but we know it's coming. The day is coming. And we're to encourage one another. We're, we're to exhort one another. The noun was used of one who comes alongside and gives aid, such as an advocate that pleads your case in court. Have you ever thought that one of the reasons you come is to encourage other people? It's not about you. We make it about us. It's become such a consumer mentality. What's in it for me? How about coming for what's in it for others? Because when you come, you can be an encouragement. And so here's the implication. You may not like this, but you are your brother's and sister's keeper. The church the ministry implies knowing one another more than in a superficial level. When we get back to having all of the, the opportunities here, I encourage you if you're not in a Sunday school class or a life group in a church our size with as many services as we have, that smaller group, and some of them are large, but that smaller group will be the one that knows your name. They will be the one that will minister to you in a tragic time. They will be the ones that will rejoice with you when you rejoice. You've got to know each other. You've got to get involved that way in other words you need the church and the church needs you has nothing to do with money has to do with encouraging one another you can tell by looking at me 
that I am not a marathon runner. I was not made to run long distances. I was made to run over people. I was never in the backfield in football. I was always on the line. You know what I'm talking about. So don't mess with me. I'll run over you. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm just about done. Hang with me. Marathon runners. I got off track. I digressed really badly. I've been told. I've, you know, you see those 26.2 stickers? That's, that's a marathon, 26.2 miles. My sticker is .26. It's a quarter of a mile. But I've been told in marathons that, you know, people will line up in different parts of the, of the route and, and encourage people. But one of the hardest places is mile 25. They're ready to stop. So sometimes family and friends will line up from mile 25 to 26.2 and they are there encouraging them and telling you, you can do it. You can go on. Don't quit. Well, I want you to know as a Christian, following Jesus is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we need each other to make it to the finish. We need each other to stay in the race. We need each other to encourage. And God uses our Christian friends to give us staying power. We need brothers and sisters who will encourage and press on. You need your church, and the church needs you. It's an old hymn, and you may, many of you may know the first verse, but I don't know that you know the other three. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts and Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. We know that one. I can remember closing church services with that. Verse 2, before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comfort and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear. And often before each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder apart, when we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. If you don't have a church you're missing so much and other people are missing so much because they need you also. If you don't know Jesus, you're missing it all. These Jewish believers were wanting to go back to their legalism and to their law and basically you could write across the letter, the, the book of, of Hebrews, better. Jesus is so much better. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has given us access. We can now draw near to God. We don't have to be afraid. I can tell you I've been to Israel several times, and one of the places is the Wailing Wall. And you'll see the Jewish men up praying at the wall and the women at a separate place. But up, up on top of that wall is the Temple Mount, where at one time the temple was 
where the Holy of Holies and so forth were. Most Jewish people don't get to go up on the Temple Mount, but even if they could, they're not allowed to go up up higher where the temple would have been. You know why? Because they're afraid. They are afraid they'll step on the place where the Holy of Holies might have been. I asked our guide while they were praying, I said, how do these people know that they're right with God? And he said, they don't. They can only hope that they are. I said, that must be scary. He said, you have no idea. Now, he knows Jesus. I said, see, Jesus takes out that fear. And if you don't know Jesus, you're afraid of God, but you don't have to be. If you'll turn from your sin and ask God to forgive you and believe in your heart that Jesus, raised, that Jesus died for our sin and God raised him from the dead, you place your faith and trust in him and make your commitment to him, you'll be saved. There's no more fear. And like I began the service with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you don't know Jesus, you can receive him right now as your Savior. If you're watching online, you hit that connect button or you hit that button that says, I need somebody to pray with me. Somebody will help you know how to receive Christ. In a moment, after I pray, and we're going to go in a few moments, there'll be some pastors hanging around here at the front for a few moments if you'd like to talk to one of us about a commitment to Christ or praying with you or being a member here, whatever it is on your heart, we'll be glad to visit with you. But right now, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have given us. <laughs> You've told us to come right on in through Jesus. And I pray for those who may be here today or watching online that have never given their life to Christ that they would see clearly that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that they would give their lives to you now. And Lord, I thank you for such a sweet place as Southcrest. I know it's not perfect, but I thank you for the forgiven, God-loving, sweet people that it has. And thank you that I get to be part of it. And Lord, how good it has been to see them today. I pray for those who may be watching online that need to give their life to you. And Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for a church. And thank you for this day when we could gather again together. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.